Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I'm John from MLH, and I'm here today with Michael Heap, the Director of Developer Experience at Kong. How's it going, Michael? Hey, John. Uh, things are, are going pretty well. Like yesterday was the, the shortest day of the year, which means it's only going to get better. Yep, that is definitely how I feel. I, I'm uh, tired of the 4 p.m. Uh, sundown. As am I. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, I uh, am definitely ex excited to hear about a lot of different things you're working on, but I would love to start uh, sort of back at the beginnings of your career. I always find it really helpful to, you know, get some context from my guests about where they came from. Um, well, why don't you start off and tell us a little bit about your origin story? How did you get into tech and, and engineering? So I've... It's your, your typical story. I've always been interested in uh, taking things apart to see how they work. I wasn't quite so good at putting them back together again, uh, but I survived. Um, the the origin stories uh, are from one. I used to play a, an online game, text-based, browser-based, and I must have been about 17. And I was just saying, look, someone's got to give me a job, like, I need to make some money. And it turns out someone said, oh, actually, one of our suppliers um, is near you. Let me drop him an email. And long story short, I ended up going and working um, during the, the college holidays and things like that uh, mm -hmm. for this web agency. And I, I knew very little at the time. Like, I knew enough to be dangerous programming-wise, but nothing about version control or actually being a professional. But they, they really took me on and helped me learn those things. Um, did the agency work, decided I didn't like that. Um, got my degree, then went off to do some product building work. Um, small pre-seed uh, failed. After that, Series A, and realized this is cool, but a little bit too risky. Went to work for an enterprise learned a ton of stuff there about navigating um, organizations, thought this is a bit too big. And now I'm at, at Kong, uh, which is Series D, which is perfect because it's still early enough that you can have an impact, but not so small that you think, oh, am I still going to have a job tomorrow? Like, is this company going to exist? So yeah, I, I've tried everything and landed where I like. It's like the three bears, right? You had to try each of the temperatures before you found the sweet spot. Exactly. And yeah, Series D is definitely the, the Goldilocks for me. Mm -hmm. um, the game that you mentioned playing when you were uh, you know, a, a teenager, are you talking about like a MUD or a BBS? Like, well, what kind of game was it? Um, so no, it wasn't a, a MUD. It was a, a space-based game. It was called mm -hmm. Evolution 5. Um, you build up fleets and armies and work with people. Um, it was quite niche. I think at its peak, it only had three to 500 players. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was a real community feel about it, uh, which is what kept me going back. 
but we're talking like the the days of the community existing on IRC, I would imagine. It was IRC best. Yeah. It's funny. I, I got into uh, programming through a very similar type of browser game where all of the communication was IRC and then ICQ, if you remember that. Um, and it I was do. a Star Wars themed game, but like really low on functionality, high on community. Feels very familiar. Yeah. It's, it's a good gateway drug to uh, becoming a programmer. Um, that, that's really cool. So uh, you've you've been at a lot of different organizations, right? And you, you sort of uh, tested the waters in a lot of different places. Um, it sounds like each of those different orgs has, you know, kind of guided you towards this sweet spot that you're in now. You know, what were what were some of the things that you learned? Um, you know, let's start with the seed stage startup. And, and I'm curious about the the big enterprise too that you know drove you in this direction. So the the seed stage was um kind of pivotal in my my development because it was small and everyone had to do everything. Um at that point um, I knew a, a single language, so for my sins, I was a PHP developer. Um, we built out this tool. It was actually using the the Twitter streaming API. Realized PHP wasn't a good fit. Thought, okay, well, let's learn Node. I can do that. So then I learned Node to do that, and they said, oh, well, we need to deploy it somewhere. Oh, how do I deploy a server? And I'm glad that we we failed because we definitely shouldn't have shipped my server config into production at that point in time. But it was a great learning experience because the alternative was that it didn't get done. So you just had to kind of power through. Um, very different to the enterprise experience where there was a lot of uh, domain and technical knowledge, but it was also much bigger. So you couldn't just rely on those technical skills. Um, you had to learn... Uh, how to communicate, uh, how to build consensus, how to get buy-in for your projects. Um, again, a lot of learning, just a, a different kind. Um, it was more the interpersonal skills than the technical skills at that point. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's interesting because if the seed stage startup had been successful, it may have ended up in a similar spot, right? Like all organizations get to a point where you have to be able to build consensus and buy in on your ideas. I would imagine that Kong is probably not quite as bureaucratic as a big enterprise, but you know, it's a large enough organization that you have to exercise some of those interpersonal skills, right? You definitely do. Um, the, the further up the org you go, the more you've got to use those, those skills because it's not just you anymore. It's the team that you represent. Mm-hmm. Um, like there are limited uh, resources, time, money, servers. Like you've got to be able to negotiate for what you need to make um, your team successful, which at the end of the day will make the company successful. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, I talk a lot with some of the the managers that I work with. Um, the difference between a manager and a director, where the manager is quite. Uh, vertical focused like mm-hmm. down to their team whereas a, a director is more horizontal like working with their peers uh, to try and make everyone successful uh, but they don't necessarily have much insight in the day-to-day of what the team is doing hmm. 
I'm curious, like, uh, you know, given that you started as a, a technical individual contributor, and now it sounds like you're probably in more of a strategy role, um, how, how have you made that transition, right? That's a particularly hard transition for a lot of engineers. So I was very fortunate uh, to work with a coach at one point, and I I was leading a, a small team at the the series the series B startup and I couldn't understand why the projects uh, that I was kind of bootstrapping weren't getting off the ground it's like but look we're solving customer problems customers are happy like why aren't you investing in this and she turned around and said to me well why does the business care like yes that is technically the right thing to do but what's in it for them and that was kind of a, a light bulb moment for me and as I started to dig into that, well, why do they care? Like, this is going to cost them more. It's going to be slower. Yes, it's more technically accurate. Um, and I just carried on down that path. Like, okay, well, why are we building this? Who are we building it for? What is the customer trying to achieve? And that's what took me out of that that technical day-to-day into more of the uh, the product sides, the product development, more of the, the strategy. Um, I won't say it was easy. Uh, you asked how I did it as a, a technical individual. Um, I read a lot of books. Um, lots of uh, management books, lots of psychology, like really understanding people. Um, I think if I had to summarize it all in a sentence, it would be make sure you understand what incentives the other person is working under. And that will help you navigate almost any other situation. Yeah, I think that's really wise advice. I um, you know, I, I started out as an engineer and also became DevRel, and you know, have had the chance to do sales and marketing and strategy and all of these different, you know, kind of non-technical disciplines. Um, and a lot of it does come back to that, right? Like, how good are you at fitting into other people's goals and worldview and you know, uh, kind of aligning the things that you are working on to the needs of of others in a lot of cases. Um, that's really, uh, I like that as a, as a core takeaway. Um, you said that you read a lot of books. Were there any uh, particular books that you would recommend? Um, I, uh, I know there's an infinite number of management books out there, but maybe, maybe one or two that, uh, you know, hit particularly hard. So the first, um, which is actually on my list to reread over the holidays, is The Manager's Path by Camille Fournier. That's uh, one that gets recommended a lot for a good reason. Um, And I can't remember the title of the other one. Uh, Give me a second. Sure. That's the one. Uh, It's called Leadership and Self-Deception by the Obinger Institute. It's a short book, uh, but it it challenges you uh, to look at yourself anytime something is going wrong. Uh, as a leader, it's very easy to say, well, that person didn't do their job or all is out of my control. But it positions it in a way that makes you think, actually, did I handle this the right way? Um, but I have seen it coming. And um, the... The example it gives uh, that really resonated with me is when you're a new parent 
and the baby's crying and you're laying there and you're thinking, oh, my partner should go and deal with that. Like, I've been at work all day, they haven't. And then they're not moving. And then you think, oh, why are they so lazy? And they haven't done anything. Like, this is you trying to make yourself feel better that you're not getting up and moving yep. uh, to help with the baby. Uh, that's one of the examples and it, it really helps frame that okay, why am I angry at this person? Like, why am I disappointed? Why do I feel this way? Is it because of something that I'm feeling with myself and I'm deflecting? Um, I highly recommend that to anyone that goes into leading people because yeah, that introspection is super important. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'll have to check that out. Um, so... Well, one of the things I noticed when I was uh, looking into your background is that at, you know, Nexmo, Vonage, where you were at before Kong, you started as an individual kind of developer advocate type and eventually became a director level uh, in that department. Um, I'm curious, like, having been on both sides of that table, what, what are some of the things that individual developer advocates um may not understand about the overall DevRel strategy that companies have to deploy. We are very expensive. Uh, it's not just um, the, the flights and the expenses when we're, we're going to events. Uh, there's a lot of tooling that we use that we need to pay for. There's the salaries, like looking for people that um, have the background that we have that have enough technical knowledge that can communicate. Like it's actually quite a small group of people. And as a lot more businesses start to launch DevRel programs, they're in demand. So DevRel as an org um, is a, a non-trivial cost. So that as I went from IC to director, and one of the things I focused on was, okay, how can I show the impact that we're having? Uh, it's one of the reasons why um, a Kong one of the functions I look after is products analytics. And a key part of that is attribution. Like what content are we producing that is driving uh, sales demos? Like, I know sales is a, a word that DevRel people don't mention, but it's a really good way to show value. Like, hey, DevRel touched all of these things before the customer signed up. Um, and also on the, the flip side, so I've... Uh, and next month on the agenda again at Kong, I've done a lot of work with documentation teams. Being able to say, hey, go and look at your customer, look at their product usage, but also look what pages on the docs they're visiting. Like that can give you some insight into what they're struggling with. You can reach out and offer paid support. Um, so it's not just like how do we get people in, it's how do we make them successful uh, and if we can drive revenue through that as well, well, why not? Yeah. It's certainly something that a lot of DevRel teams struggle with, right? It is justifying their existence. Um, out of curiosity, does developer experience at Kong fall under marketing or product or engineering or something else entirely? So we fall under product. Uh, that was a very, particular, a very specific choice for me. I like being involved in the, the product development. I don't think that you can solve the rough edges in a product from 
marketing or from engineering. You really need to be product aligned. And if you can't solve the fundamental things in the product, um, like how can you advocate for it if you're not pro- proud of it? Mm. So yeah, product is key for me. Uh, but I'm very fortunate. Uh, we actually have a developer marketing team as well that sits within marketing. Uh, it's run by a lady that I was heavily involved with the Kubernetes community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really understands developers as well. And it's a bit like uh, products and engineering, like products, set the vision, engineering, deliver it. Mm. Um, it's the same with developer marketing and developer uh, relations at Kong. Uh, the marketing side will drive a lot of the campaigns um, on a lot of the metrics and develop the, the boots on the ground, interacting with the community, making it a success. Interesting. So marketing might plan the actual engagements, but DevRel are often the ones who staff them. That's true. Interesting. It's funny because uh, as you probably know, like DevRel, Dev marketing, Dev, Dev advocacy often get used interchangeably, but it sounds like you have a very specific uh, idea, at least at Kong, of, of what each one represents. We do, and people still get confused. Like we we explain this probably once a quarter uh, to a large audience, uh, but it it really works for us. It allows us to bring uh, the experience from both groups. Like I don't know the first thing about um, building newsletter mailing lists and distribution and all the segmentation, but I don't have to because I can fall back on uh, my marketing colleague who knows that inside out. At the same time. Uh, she couldn't run early access programs for betas and things like writing the the quick start guides and producing the videos, uh, mm-hmm. but we can. So it's a very symbiotic relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to go in a slightly different direction, you know, we talked about making that transition from IC to, to management. Um, one of the things I noticed when I was looking at your blog and website is that you still do a lot of technical projects, right? It's clearly uh, part of your life. I don't know how much it relates to your job, but I'd be curious to hear, like, how do you balance, you know, working on interesting technical projects with management responsibilities, with, you know, different things that you have on your plate? I don't do it at work, is the, mm-hmm. the answer. Um, I made this mistake when I first transitioned from IC to manager. I still wanted to do the the tech thing like a lot of us do. And then I remember there was one project in particular where it just stalled because I was on holiday or I was in meetings or something like that. And they said, well, Michael was building this and no one else knows how it works. It's like, yeah, I probably shouldn't be doing that anymore. So now I... I try very specifically not to be on the critical path for projects. I will still um, like run a spike on something, say, oh, this looks interesting. Let me see if it's feasible. And if it is, hand it off to someone that will do a much better job of it. Uh, but I'm still an engineer. Like, I still need to build those projects. So I, I like to do a lot of open source work. Um, that's all in my free time unrelated to my, my day job. Um, it can be anything. I'm currently working on uh, a CLI tool for Trello. 
Uh, I built the first version in 2016 at a hackathon. Um, and I wanted to learn TypeScript. So I thought, okay, let's rebuild it uh, using all cliff and all those, all that goodness. And that's how I, I still build out the, that's how I still get my technical uh, kick uh, without doing it in the day-to-day job, uh, mainly open source. Where do your ideas come from, right? Like most technical projects are solving some kind of problem. It could be a personal problem, business problem, a friend's problem. Like where do you source your ideas? They are all personal problems for me. Um, I'm very lazy. If I have to do something more than once, uh, I will spend sometimes way too much time automating it. Um, I've I've done everything, like the Trello CLI, like I just wanted to say, like, what's due today? Didn't want to have to open a browser, just give it me in my terminal. Um, but I've also done things like written a CLI tool that logs into, uh, automates a browser, logs into our payslips portal and downloads the PDF of my payslip and then moves it. Um, it, well, it was Dropbox at the time, and uh, now it's iCloud. But then I set that running on the Chrome, and every month my payslip is backed up on my own device, and I don't have to do anything with it. Uh, so yeah, lots of, I'm lazy, I don't want to do this. Uh, let's just try and automate it somehow. I like that. Um, so it seems like like you're kind of prolific, right? In terms of the open source projects you've been building. Have any of them uh, garnered their own community of contributors or, or you know, perhaps even a large number of users? None have built a community. Um, a lot of that is me. I am not a great community builder hmm. uh, because I do it to scratch my own itch. Uh, but some of the projects have uh, quite a few users. Um, let's use Trello CLI. Like that's packaged for some Linux distributions, as an example. So you you can just run um, apt install Trello CLI, mm-hmm. and it will work. Um, a lot of the the projects that have picked up steam are actually GitHub Actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I I got into GitHub Actions very early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, built a few. Uh, there's companies like uh, Brave Browser, GitLab, Vimeo, like all using actions that I've built. Now, there's not much of a community around these because they're, they're actually quite small and self-contained. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are finished. Like they don't need active maintenance apart from uh, security updates. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are very heavily used. Um even by people like uh, Rust, the programming language. So yeah, it's, it tends to be less community, but high usage. Yeah. Did, did you say that GitLab is using your GitHub Actions? Yes. Can you talk me through that? That's that's a little counterintuitive. Uh, so I can't remember which one um, it was using. Um, I, actually, I can probably pull it up here. Uh, let's see. Yes. Uh, so GitLab have a GitHub repo, uh, for the Terraform provider. Uh, uh, uh it's now been migrated to GitLab. Uh, 
last month it was mm-hmm. migrated, so I need to to check that. Um, but until recently, yeah, it was using uh, one of my GitHub actions. Yeah, November the 9th it migrated. Oh wow, that's really recent. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so so a lot of your early work on GitHub Actions, uh, it seems like has led to some interesting, like, you know, reusable use cases, but you also wrote a book about it. Um, like, obviously, GitHub Actions was not the first tool to do exactly what it does, but why did it attract your attention in such a deep way when it did come out? I like things that work together. So um, before GitHub Actions, I was a big Jenkins user. Yep. Uh, that was one of the the conference talks that I traveled around giving uh, the Jenkins file and uh, the uh, scripted pipelines. But Jenkins is still its own thing that you've got to install and deploy and manage. I really like when a tool just gives me everything that I need when my code is next to my CI, which is next to my projects. Like the the less wiring together I have to do personally, the better. It goes back to me being lazy. Like, yes, I could set up uh, GitHub actions with Travis or with Jenkins and then hook that up to Jira. All the time that I'm spending linking those together and maintaining those connections is time that I'm not spending building things, which is what I actually set out to do. Uh, so that's why GitHub Actions caught my attention. Is some like CI/CD is something that I, I believe every project needs, and having it co-located with my code um, just made sense to me. Yeah. So you wrote a book about it. Um, I'm really fascinated by the idea of technical books in the modern age. Like when I was getting started coding, you know, that was one of the only reliable resources to learn a a new tech or language. Now, I mean, you know, we have the internet. So, so why write a book? Like what was the benefit of, uh, you know, putting something out there in like a static kind of monolithic way? So I was already learning this stuff and talking about it with colleagues. And I was getting a lot of questions like, well, how do you do this? How do you do that? And I figured I had to write it down for them anyway. So why not package it all up and use it as a learning opportunity? So actually learning GitHub Actions and writing the book, that wasn't the the high point or the interesting point, but... How do you build an ebook? Like, how do you distribute that? Like, how do you build a, a good landing page? Like, what does marketing this look like? Um, that's what I, I did it for. Not to write the book, not to sell the book, but to provide myself with the opportunity to learn more about the sales, marketing, and distribution side of things uh, so that I could then build more empathy with those roles in my day-to-day work. Uh, I've got a lot of empathy for them. Um, sympathy is probably a better word. Uh, definitely not for me, the sales and marketing side. Um, the, the book's doing okay, uh, but it could do a lot better if I really went all in on the, the marketing and promotions. 
interesting. Um, that's really cool. I, I love the idea of using it as a mechanism to learn a new skill. Like like writing the book in itself was not the goal. The, the goal was to learn this skill. The book was just a means to an end. Um, it feels like there's a lot of things that you're talking about that fit that same pattern, right? Like, you know, solving your own problems, you know, figuring out how to manage people. Like all of these are interesting almost like methodologies for advancing your own skill set. Uh, yeah. Do you have like a guiding philosophy that you follow or does it just happen to all fit your sort of normal behavioral pattern? It's pretty normal for me. Um, someone uh, once summarized it as um, I'm an engine builder. Mm. I, I don't like to do things myself for a long period of time let's build a system that enables it and then once that system is running like okay how can we make it more efficient how can we make it bigger um and to do that you've got to understand all the the component parts mm -hmm. um so that's part of it uh the <laughs> the other part is um be the kool-aid man you know the the big shape that just runs through the walls like that that's the other half of it. Like yeah. if you don't know how to do it, just figure it out. Like ask someone, try it, fail. Um I've failed more times than I could to admit. Um but as long as you learn from that and say, Okay, well, what can I do differently this time? And there's a lot to be said for yeah, running through walls until you're successful. Yeah. Uh what <laughs> what are some notable failures? Um, my very first job uh, when I was at the agency, uh, they asked me to do some cleanup of a server. Um, I accidentally inverted some logic and instead of deleting all the, the backup files, I deleted uh, all the live files and took all the, the sites offline. Yep. Um, and then it deleted the backup files as well. So that was, was interesting. Um, what, what did you I, do about it? Uh, we had offsite backups, okay. thankfully. Uh, I did sit for, it was about four hours where I didn't tell anyone. I was like, no, I can fix this. I can find them. And I eventually told my my boss, who was the owner of the agency, and he was like, okay, I'll, I'll restore the backups. Uh, they're only from yesterday. Um, next time, tell me faster. Yeah. Uh, learning opportunity. Um, I've managed to rack up large bills with infinite loops in processing pipelines. Uh, that one is never fun. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a lot of asking forgiveness then. Um, I also fails a lot with people, like assuming that you should treat everyone the same. Mm -hmm. Like that's fairly common uh, management advice. It took me a long time to realize that actually you should treat people the way they need to be treated like what works for them, um, the difference between equal and equitable. Yeah, I, I've made mistakes with yeah tech, people, finance, like you name it, I've made it. So I love the differentiation between equal and equitable. I do think that's probably an underappreciated aspect of working uh, on larger teams. One of the things I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about 
you know, since we've talked so much about like the human side of things, um, what do you look for when you're building teams? Like, like what are the, the traits and skills that make up a good developer experience organization? Differences. I, I do not want an org where everyone is the same. Um, there's a few schools of thought on this. Some people say, you know, go and find the absolute best person you can for this role. Uh, if you get three great people, let's hire three great people. But what happens is you hire three great people. They've all got different ideas. They all want to do the wrong thing and they clash. Instead, I, I look for the gaps in the team. Like, okay, we've, we've got some people that are fantastic at starting projects, coming up with innovative ideas, but they're not great at making sure that once we've produced it, that it's syndicated correctly, that we're tracking the metrics to see what resonates. Okay, well, let's let's hire someone that's a, a bit more back office, that doesn't want to be out on stage, but is a bit more detail-oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hire them. And then we say, oh, well, actually, we're doing a lot of content that is uh, quite high level, which is great. We get the, the people brand new to the, the ecosystem, but some of our customers are asking for a technical deep dive, so we don't have that on the team. Okay, let's hire someone with a a technical background, um, specifically in the technology that we're working with to do some of that content. So it it really is look for what you're missing and plug the gaps. Do you have any duplication? Like when is it warranted to have multiple people with similar skill sets? When they're in different time zones. Hmm. So I'm a big believer in distributed teams as well. Um, Kong is a global company like West Coast to Japan. And for the Asia-Pacific region, having to wait until um, the US West Coast wakes up, like that's just not feasible. Uh, so building um, self-contained pods in regions um, is something that I like. Um, the other time to hire similar people um, is when they need to balance each other. If you've got someone that is super business focused, like how do we impact the bottom line um, and has a lot of ideas, they might also hire someone that is also very passionate, but on the community side. Mm-hmm. And yes, they're both great at what they do. They're both very vocal, but they balance each other out when it comes to what the team should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess they're, they're similar in some aspects, but still different in others. So well, when you actually joined Kong, like what did that department look like versus what have you built it into? Like what what has that evolution been? Uh, so when I started, it was just me. Um, I believe you've spoken to Victor Gamov. Uh, yeah. He was also on his, his way to Kong. And uh, we both interviewed at the same time. Mm-hmm. Name's just Vic and I. Uh, developer experience is now 10 people. Um, covering developer relations, documentation, and product analytics. So you've had to build that entire team and strategy, or did you know the founders or or the chief product officer have a vision for what this was going to look like? Um, so two of the people were internal transfers, but the other eight uh, were direct hires. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very fortunate 
uh, my VP trusts in what we do. Uh, so it's it's very team driven the strategy. Uh, I won't say it's me uh, because it's very much a, a team driven thing. Uh, my job is just translating what we do into business speak for the exec team uh, to make sure that we continue to get funded. Yeah, necessary part of any uh, developer focused org. So we've spoken a lot about sort of your own path. You know what you do, uh, what you're excited about. Um, I'd love to to hear some advice that you have for you know folks who are maybe a bit early in their careers, right? Uh, you know, it sounds like you've been really motivated by trying different things and new things and solving problems. You know, how do you recommend that other people get their start and and advance? I think the biggest advice is just to get started and try something like community is a huge part of it mm-hmm. um i found my first job through a community okay it wasn't a technical community um, but it put me in a, a situation where i could learn from people yeah uh, and that's been a driving force so when you're evaluating roles like try and find a job where it's a big-ish team not so big that you just fade into obscurity uh, but kind of three, five, ten people is a perfect size for you to go in and learn from people. Mm-hmm. Um, you can learn what works, what doesn't. And then my, my rule of thumb for staying at a job, assuming things are going well, is three to four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then jump ship and try and find another business about the same size, um, perhaps in a, a different industry or a different tech stack, and then learn from that audience and then start building up, well, what's the same, what's different? Um, so yeah, the, the advice is get started doing something and constantly be looking for groups that you can join to learn things. A big part of learning, at, at least in my own experience, has been failing. And then I know that you said you failed quite a bit as well. Do you think that uh, organizations of that size, right, when you're not a seed stage startup, but maybe, you know, a series C or D, have as many opportunities for people to fail? I know that's an odd question, but uh, I mean, it's, you know, honestly. It's a very good question. Uh, my honest answer is no. Um, there is a lot less margin for error compared to, say, an enterprise. Um when I, I was at Vonage, we hired a lot of second career developers, people fresh out of boot camps, knowing that we had the, the ecosystem to support them. Mm-hmm. And if they, they made a mistake, well, okay, it might cost a little bit of money, a bit of time, but it's not going to sink the business. Series C, Series D probably still won't sink the business if the business is set up correctly. Like if a, a new hire can kill your business then something else went wrong it's not the new highest fault mm-hmm. like that's a, a business failing um but the um the atmosphere um will probably change in that kind of environment like okay we've got to watch them a bit more closely um, i'm i'm a big fan of the, the one-way door or two-day two-way door concepts uh, mm-hmm. from amazon 
if it's a two-way door, um, let them go through it, make whatever mistakes they want, knowing that they can come back through. As leaders, it's our job to identify the one-way doors and make sure we catch things before they go through them. Um, so, yeah, focus on the the bigger companies where you can fail safely, um, but also try and find a team where someone is watching out for you to stop you making those irreversible mistakes. Yeah, that's great. Um, so failure is kind of the the uh, we'll call it like the the chaotic good method of learning. Um, how how do you kind of build more structured learning activities for people on your team, right? Because not everyone will necessarily want to go play around with tech stacks after work, right? Like a lot of that has to happen, you know, within the workday. So how do you actually structure that into to your team's goals and, and what you need to accomplish? We're fortunate that we have a lot of domain experts within the business. Uh, this is actually a question I asked during the interview process. Like if you join us in your doing a lot of the work that you're you're paid to do what what would you want to learn on the side um we've got a, a tooling engineer um ruby on rails background lots of ruby our doc site is jackal uh, so he's doing a lot of that but he also wants to learn more about the cloud native space kubernetes wonderful like we have people that are part of the the gateway api kubernetes special interest group internally let me let me connect the two of you. Like you can have a coffee, have a chat. Like that's how you you drive learning in a structured way for me. Like you make introductions, you use your network to enable um, others to have those conversations, understand if it's something they're interested in, and get recommendations from the experts because you can't do everything. Thinking in a broader sense, uh if you could change anything about how developers are currently being educated, what would that be? And, you know, you mentioned boot camps. you mentioned you went to college, like, like looking at the, the entire world of how people become developers. The, the tongue in cheek answer is less videos. <laughs> but, <laughs> why, why do you say that? I, I'm just a, a text person. Mm. I, I can read faster than, than I can watch. I don't have the attention span for watching. Uh, that is a very tongue-in-cheek answer. Um, Personal preference. What, what would I change? I would probably not... Let me start again. Um, I would stop by, stop you from writing so many tutorials, like follow this, follow this, follow this. Instead, um, I'd like to see us focus more on, here is the problem that I want you to solve. Like try and build it, and perhaps here are some of the errors that you might hit, and here are some links to useful materials to help you understand them and fix them. But there are so many people that just follow tutorials, think, okay, I'm successful, it worked, but then you try and change any of that, and they they can't get off the rails. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's probably the the biggest thing I would change instead of um, holding the hands so far down the line. Do it a little bit, but then give them a an independent problem to solve. Because that's what really um, makes you learn. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of the beauty of hackathons or really any other project based learning exercise is that you are forced to apply a lot of the knowledge 
that you've learned abstractly in a very concrete way. So I, I completely agree. I think that's an absolute necessity for people who want to become developers. Nice. Um, so the question I always like to end on is kind of a, just like a, a fun hypothetical one. Um, you know, if there's any person in the world, you know, ideally someone in the tech world that you could take to lunch for a couple of hours that you've never met, uh, who might that be? Who, who do you aspire to spend some time with? I think this will probably be Julia Evans. Why? Um, she has such a, an approachable way of teaching. Uh, like I, I love all the designs that she draws. Um, I, I just think they're an incredible way of getting actually quite detailed information. Um, like, how does DNS work? Mm-hmm. Like, that's a, a big question for someone that doesn't even know what DNS is, but they can read a, a couple of pages of her drawings and at least know what questions to ask. Hmm. Um, I think that uh, a lot of technical people know a lot of the answers, but struggle communicating it in an accessible way. And I'd love to pick her brains on, like, hey, instead of just writing 30,000 words of text, like, how do I get this out of my head and into everyone else's um, to help make them successful as well? Awesome. I, I love that. She does incredible work. I, I... Would also like to meet her very much. Um, well, thank you so much, Michael. I, I really enjoyed our conversation and everything you had to share. Um, I, I appreciate your time. Great to be here, John. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. You know, if people listening enjoyed it, please do follow and subscribe. We'll be publishing more episodes on an ongoing basis. But um, thanks again and uh, happy hacking. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking or MLH. To find out more about MLH and how we power innovation, cultivate developer communities, and teach technical skills to students around the world, visit mlh.io. And then make sure to search for Developer Education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at MLH, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking.